Now I'm on. Well, good morning, guys. How are we? All right, let's go Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, but also Matthew chapter 7. So if you're the bookmarking type, it's your chance to shine. Giving you an advance warning. Matthew 28 and Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 7. All right, so if you happen... Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your very own, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, don't have one that you could call yours, your copy of God's Word, we would love for you to take that physical one home. The reason that's incredibly simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Like that's, like that's the thing we want here. And that, I mean, we're about to talk about it a lot, actually. Right? Uh, but like if the Scripture is what He uses to do that, in you, like it's like common sense. It's just good math to be digging into his word on a regular basis, repeatedly, rhythmically, all those kinds of things. I think God will use it in a big way. Uh, Matthew 28 and Matthew 7. So we closed out our Titus series last week, all right? And so that's done and gone. We're, we won't ever revisit Titus again, or at least for another six months or so. I don't know, all right? Uh, but you may have heard uh, that we have this little anniversary thing happening next week. I don't know if that's come across your newsfeed. At, at all, um, and all those kinds of things. And so I thought it would be beneficial for us for these kind of couple of Sundays to take a look at uh, what I think at least are a couple of incredibly fundamental things to who we are as a church. That sound like a smart idea to you? Seems like a smart idea to me. All right, um, so foundational that, that it's the kind of thing that like maybe, I don't know, hypothetically speaking, we might like spend a little bit of money on and print up some fancy canvas artwork and hang out in a foyer in a prominent place. I don't think anybody would ever do something crazy like that, right? No? No, no, no one would do that? Okay, great. All right. If, if, you, if you aren't aware, we're talking about our mission statement. It's on, a, it's on some posters out there. We want to be a church that, do you know it? Ah, so bad at this. All right. You want, we want to be a church that knows God that loves one another, and see, you do know it. You're just bad at testing. <laughs> all right. Blah, 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 blah. Public schools. Yeah, whatever. Okay. All right. So now we want to be a church that knows God, loves one another, and serves in the world. Um, and if you've been hanging around here for more than a couple of weeks, it's probably some phrasing that you've come across. If you've gone through our new membership conversation, it's definitely something that we've spent a lot of time talking through and walking uh, through that kind of understanding of things. And, and so every church and nonprofit needs a good mission statement, right? Like, isn't that how it works? Uh, at, at least that's what the best leadership books tell us. You ever read a leadership book? I've read a lot of leadership books. And if we're, if we're going to reach our full organizational potential, then we need to codify a culture that drives us to where we want to go. That's the kind of language that leadership books tend to use. I don't know if you've ever come across that kind of stuff. And so about seven or eight years ago, we adopted a, a formal mission statement for Nashua Baptist Church, almost verbatim out of a leadership book, by the way. But hey, we've got a proven one, all right? That's how you get about the, the good ones. And so whatever it took, we're official now. We have a mission statement. So boom, get after it. Right? And we're poking fun at the idea. If you're new here, that's part of our charm. <laughs> we never take ourselves too seriously, even the things that we think are serious. And so, the entire idea of a mission statement does raise an important question. 
is one actually necessary? Like, do we actually need one? Let me put the leadership books back on the shelf for a second. I'm, I'm not anti-leadership books. They have their place. I've read a few myself. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, as, as Christians, we, we have exactly one book that is our final authority on all things faith and practice, right? And so to faithfully answer the do we need it question, we must be able to make such an argument from Scripture. And if we can't make such an argument, then mission statements, whether we think they're a good mission statement or a not-so-good mission statement, whether uh, we spend a lot of time on them or we just yank them out of a leadership book real fast, uh, no matter what we think about it, if we can't make such an argument, then whatever that mission statement is must necessarily take a backseat to what we actually have been called to, right? So the obvious next question is, can we look to anywhere in the Bible and say, oh, mission statements, they're important for churches? Not really. The closest we can get to any kind of mission statement text is a passage of Scripture that I'm really hoping you're way more familiar with than anything we've hung on a wall. All right? Matthew 28. Let's look at it. Matthew 28. We're just going to be real quick here, but starting in verse 18, it says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right? So right there, Jesus, uh, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he's got one last thing to handle. And so uh, he spent the last three years or so discip- uh, discipling, disciplining his, his kind of core group of guys and some extra followers, training his inner servants circle of of people. He's lived perfectly obedient to the law of God in both action and in intent. He's died on the cross as a sacrificial payment to reconcile us fully and forever to the Father. And he has been raised again from the dead as a down payment of our own future resurrection. Just a couple of things on the to-do list, right? Minor issues that Jesus handled while he stepped in for a while. And right before he ascends into heaven, He huddles the disciples up and he tells them that their job from now on, that their job from now on is to make other disciples, other followers of Jesus from all of the other peoples. That's what he tells them to do. And to teach those new disciples everything he taught them. That's the job. And he, and he bases that command on the reality that he now has all authority in heaven and on earth. What, didn't he have all the authority before? Yeah, he kind of did, but now he's got even more authority. Because not only is he both creator and Lord, now he is also victor and vindicator. He gets all of the titles. And so that means that his command here is not some cute little suggestion, and it's not some... A quick tip for how to you know, be a little more successful in this next phase of redemptive history. No, this is from now on the job of all those who would seek to be called his followers. It's their job. So much so that to kind of operate outside of this command, to, to be disobedient to this command by hollowing out the supreme uh, kind of importance of this command, it, it means that we're not actually following him. And so we, we try to make a regular habit around here of pointing to this text and kind of discussing it, describing it as our one job to do. We certainly have a lot of other really great and important things going on, but all of the other things either help us 
accomplish our one job or they potentially stand in the way of us accomplishing our one job. So how do mission statements play into that reality? We'll say it as clearly and unapologetically as I can. We do not at all get to have a different competing mission than the one that King Jesus already gave us. Period. A church's mission statement, whether it's ripped straight from the pages of the best-selling leadership book or it's kind of crafted together and wordsmithed by somebody who's good at PR and thinking about things and, and, and all those kind of things that are important, a church's mission statement either helps that church accomplish the one job that Jesus gave that church to accomplish or it stands in the way and conflicts with the one job that Jesus gave them to accomplish. Ours included. And so, Rather than an attempt to try to codify a culture, rather than anything like that, for us, our mission statement is an attempt to try to help us measure how we're doing on what Jesus already told us to do. Make disciples. Both here in Nashua and from all peoples in all other places. Evangelize them, baptize them, and teach them to be obedient to Jesus. But uh, what, what exactly does a mature follower of Jesus look like? Right? Like, what are the markers of maturity that we're supposed to see when the nations have been thoroughly discipled? That's a really important next question, isn't it? And so it's here that such things as a mission statement can actually be helpful. We can point to all kinds of things. When it comes to markers of maturity, we, we've even covered some of those in series form the last few months, right? We can look at the fruit of the Spirit. We've got some ideas about how to properly understand the fruit of the Spirit now, right? Right? <laughs> we, could, we could look at pretty much the back half of any of Paul's church letters. It shows us what spiritual maturity looks like in light of what Jesus has done. Uh, we could turn to the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so there, there's a hundred, probably a thousand different things that we could look at and say, yes, this is what maturity is. And, and so it's here that something like a mission statement can actually be helpful. We have one mission. That mission will never change until Jesus comes back to collect what he is owed. But spiritual maturity is a much, much longer list, Right? And so our mission statement exists to help us take the thousand good things that we're chasing after God doing in us, to take all of those things and distill them down into a couple of points that we can maybe, I don't know, hypothetically hang on a wall. That's what we're aiming at. Knowing God, loving one another, serving in the world. Three columns that hold up the rest of the structure. That all of those things can get funneled down into. Now, back in the olden days, like six months ago, when we were setting out major goals for a preaching calendar, and we were going to move from Titus to getting ready for anniversary celebration, and then into the summer, I had this grandiose plan that we were going to finish Titus in five weeks, and then I was going to have all this room to have like three separate weeks to kind of tackle each of the three pieces of our, our mission statement in sequential order, and it was going to be great. Doesn't that sound like a really good plan? Anybody think I'm really good at planning things? So, Titus took longer, 
five weeks turning into eight weeks, and I didn't have my space for my series anymore, so I had to go back to the drawing board and rethink this. So I was like, oh, okay, okay. Well, here's, here, here's what we're going to do. Here, I got it. I got it. Right, what we're going to do is we're going to handle all three of them in one week. Boom, I got it. I'm so good at this. I'm not so good at this. Um, the more time I spent thinking through it, the more and more and more convinced I became that one of those columns is not like the others. It's not like the others at all. Devoting equal time to all three actually misses the fact that one of those three columns are holding up all three. They're carrying all the weight, and it's, it's only because of that one column that the other two even make any sense, let alone could be called good. So if I've only got one week available to help us understand our mission statement better, I think I need to aim at that one column. Knowing God. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. The idea of knowing God, it sounds innocuous, right? Sounds like a simple thing. and Like who would argue with that being important around here? Like is there any church out there that's going, nah, that doesn't matter to us. Maybe, okay, maybe you know a church that's like that. I don't recommend you go there. <laughs> it sounds innocuous. The harder question to answer, though, is what exactly does it mean to know him? Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's a long-form sermon that even some of the most secular people in our world can still quote major pieces of. Like if somebody who's not connected to church life knows something about what Jesus taught, it's probably coming from the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the most famous stuff that Jesus said is pulled from that sermon. And Jesus covers several different topics over the scope of those three chapters, but it's the very end of what he's talking about that concerns us this morning. So Matthew chapter 7, I probably ought to turn there myself. All right, it's going to help him to read it. Matthew chapter 7, uh, we're going to start in verse 15. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15, says, Beware of false prophets. This is Jesus speaking. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus has just spent two and a half chapters kind of unfolding the reality that God sees things on the heart level. Right, that's, that's kind of the, the main push of the first two and a half chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. That regardless of how we might try, no matter how hard we might try to kind of pretty ourselves up on the inside, God's not impressed with that. You want to know why? Because he sees through the veneer. That's why. He sees the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Jesus has never, and I mean ever, been distracted by a veneer of spirituality. He sees right through it. And so the games that we often try to, to play to, to seem more spiritual than we are, God's not fooled by that. Not for a second. In fact, it's more likely that he's angered by that stuff. And so in the first two and a half chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear that 
that we will be held accountable not just for our actions, but for the intention of our heart as well. Who we are separated from him. But starting in verse 15, there's a shift. The first two and a half chapters kind of cover that zone, but starting in verse 15, things kind of take a turn. Jesus gives a warning here to watch out for what he calls false prophets, false teachers. He calls them ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. What a picture, right? Cute little descriptor. And his point, his point is that you and I are not able to see through the veneer like he is able to see through the veneer. However, that does not mean that we are left without tools to to discern the pathway here. We're not in the dark on this. He tells us that we can actually look for some evidence. And what's that evidence? Fruit. Jesus says that you can ultimately tell who the false teachers are by looking at the fruit that their lives and teaching produce. He's not left us without tools to to deal with it. And and some, they they try to get around texts like this by arguing that, well, the fruit that that Jesus is talking about is the the fill-in-the-blank, and that fill-in-the-blank is whatever metric, worldly metric that they happen to be good at. And so uh, look at all the people we had in our services this Sunday, and and look at how much money we raised for uh, fill-in-the-blank good cause. And and have you seen our book sales this month? Talk about the spirit moving. Woo, it's doing great around here. Lots of fruit. That's typically the game that gets played. But Jesus here, Jesus, he frames what he's talking about in terms of spiritual health versus spiritual disease. He says that those leaders who know him produce healthy fruit, healthy disciples. And those leaders who don't know him, they're producing something that leaves everybody sick. It ultimately harms everyone else. And we saw this all throughout the book of Titus, right? Like, Paul didn't pull that logic out of thin air. No, he got it from Jesus. Paul's not as original as sometimes people think he is. But it tells us this week that you can see a tree from a long way off and be really impressed with how big it is and how shapely it is and may even be pretty to the eye. But as soon as you get close enough to actually examine its fruit, it'll tell you what's going on. When you get close enough to inspect the fruit it's producing, none of those other things really matter anymore. The fruit is either good to eat or it's not good to eat. It's either growing good fruit or it's growing diseased fruit. Knowing God changes everything. Everything. But look at what comes next in verse 21. Jesus isn't done. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All right, so that's fun words, right? In case you weren't paying attention, Jesus just said that there are going to be a lot of people who spent their entire lives doing amazing, spiritually minded things, and that those people will not make it into heaven. Period. And I think it'd be really foolish for us to rush past that as if it didn't completely pull the rug out from, some, out from under some people in this room. Right? Do you you see the things that are on that list? 
Those are pretty impressive things. Prophecy, casting out demons, many mighty works all done in Jesus' name. Like, that's an impressive list. I, I, I mean, I know that those first two things on that list are probably, you know, seem a little out of touch for most of us in this room. I, I mean, I'll just be honest with you, just between you and me, there wasn't a lot of, like, prophecy and exorcisms on my calendar this week. Do you think there are modern-day equivalents, though? Do you think there are things that we as a culture of churches go, man, that's impressive. Look at that guy. Look at all he's accomplishing. Look at all the the things that we can point to and say are successful by this metric or that metric. We We got our equivalents. Wonderful works for the kingdom that leave everyone else around them in all. Wishing that we could be half as effective. Right? Whatever era of the church you want to drop Jesus' words in the middle of here, he says that there will be some who work and work and work and work, and they will give sacrificially of themselves. They will be difference makers in spiritual settings, even moments that move the kingdom of God forward, and everybody sees that it's moving the kingdom of God forward. But one day, Jesus is going to look them in the eye and go, who are you? I don't know who you are. And because I don't know who you are, all of these things that you've done, this great pile of things, they're nothing but lawlessness to me. And this, church, this is why knowing God is the one column that must necessarily support the other two. Loving one another and serving in the world, they're they're both vital things. Not just vital, I would say necessary things. In fact, just like Paul did throughout Titus, I I will willingly stand up here this morning and unapologetically declare that if you don't see those two things in your life, we got a problem. I don't think you know God like you think you know God. If loving and serving are some kind of distant reality for you that you cannot connect with in mind or action, then we got an actual problem spiritually here. But, but, According to Jesus himself, it is possible to do those other two things exceptionally well and still miss what is of most importance. It is entirely possible to succeed by worldly standards or by churchly standards. It is entirely possible to succeed at loving one another and serving in the world and still go to hell. Period. We nail two-thirds of our mission statement, but we miss this one. We have a tragedy on our hands. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is why we make a gigantic deal around here about giving you opportunities to pursue knowing God more deeply. This is why we have reading lists. This is why we have Bible reading plans. This is why we have a ton of Bible study opportunities. This is why we dedicate our worship gathering predominantly to the declaration of God's word. We, we are, we're believing and trusting that he's actually going to use that to make himself known. This is why even in our small groups, which is like an environment that we've specifically built out to do the loving and serving thing better, that even in that environment, it's still wrapped around a Bible study. Why? Because there's no better platform for them to sit on. They don't make sense outside of it. 
without knowing God at the very center of what we're doing. All we are left with is some other arbitrary connection, whether that be politics or social class or education status. And in those environments, loving and serving will always, and I mean always, get twisted into things that end up exalting ourselves instead of building up the kingdom of God. Always. You want an example? Give me an example. Think of whatever mainline denomination you want to think of right now. They're all guilty of this. They jettisoned the gospel and the pursuit of knowing God a long time ago, and so now all they're left with are political talking points. That's all they got. Gathered around whatever they think makes the world a better place. It is only ever a transcendent reality of a reconciled relationship with a holy God that can properly define and then originate the earthly works of love and service that we're called to as his people. That's the only thing that will ever produce what, what we need. And without that transcendent reality, all we ever have are social arguments. All we have are competing visions of how the world works best. But Jesus still isn't done. He keeps going in verse 24. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine but does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Verse 29 or 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus closes out this Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. He closes out the Sermon on the Mount by saying, this is the reality. You are either A, someone who lives consistent with this reality, or B, someone who is not consistent with the reality, and I don't know you. How's that for an altar call? Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Church, sometimes Jesus ain't so tender. Sometimes Jesus is not so tender. He lays it out crystal clear. He says, you can build and build and build. You can throw together the best house on the block. You can decorate it inside and out so that it leaves everybody impressed. You can have everybody ooing and eyeing at the great and magnificent structure that you put together. But if you built your house on something that cannot stand, neither will the thing you built. It doesn't matter how much work you threw at it. The foundation matters. Why? Because the storm always comes, that's why. The wind always blows, the water always rises, and great will be the fall of it. But those who build on a proper foundation, Jesus himself, They can weather the storm. It's it's not their building skills that make the difference in that moment. It's the foundation that they're sitting on that makes the difference. And and it's here we see another reason why knowing God must necessarily come before the other values. It's because it's the only context that the others even have a chance of like actually surviving in. Knowing God is the only foundation that can weather the storms that are certain to come. There are lots of people and places in our world that, that think that loving and serving are good things. Nobody doubts that. Like, like you can hear that kind of morality in kindergarten. Right? Nobody, 
Nobody's, nobody in a worldly setting is going, nah, loving and serving are bad. We hate those ideas. Sometimes, sometimes, like, like our culture's understanding of those two things is even consistent with the Bible's understanding of those things. Sometimes the Gentiles stumble into doing what is right, prove that the law is good. But sooner or later, the wind always picks up. And the water always rises and the waves beat against the house. And sometimes the Gentiles naturally do what is right and many other times they actively work against what is right. They may even revile you for what is right. And in that moment, it won't be the impressive building that lasts. It'll be the foundation the main non-denominations that we thought about a moment ago, they, they not only jettisoned the gospel and knowing God 50 to 100 years ago, they've also been hemorrhaging members for the last 50 to 100 years. You want to know why? Because when the foundation starts to fall apart, it's good and right to run away from the house that's about to collapse. Homes with a foundation issue are right to be fled from. But it's not just the mainline denominations that are in trouble here because this happens in churches with, that are structurally faithful too. It, all it takes is for people to continue ignoring the call to know God deeply. That's all it takes. It, take, it takes a posture that thinks that the veneer of spirituality, ah, that's enough for now. We want to be a church that knows God. Like actually knows him. And because of our knowing him, then we love one another and serve in the world. We have no other mission but to make disciples. And, and that work begins, though, it must begin with us being disciples. So how can we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're not one of his disciples yet, not a follower of Jesus, then your response your response is to start following Jesus. It's really as simple as that. How, how can we know God? Well, the Bible gives us an answer. He makes himself known. He makes himself known. By default, all people are separated relationally from God because of our sin. He, he is infinitely holy and infinitely perfect and infinitely good. And we rejected him as Lord and King. And instead, we've exalted ourselves as kings and masters of our own hearts and lives. All right? that's, the, that's the story of the Bible. We owe a debt for that sin, and the Bible tells us that the penalty for that cosmic treason is death. Consistent with treason today. Makes a lot of sense, actually. Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature children of wrath. Romans 3 says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5, we are called his enemies. That's kind of a big hole we dug. Anybody want to be the enemy of a holy and perfect God? You're going to lose. Left to our own devices, not only are we currently separated in relationship from God, but we deserve to remain separated from this holy God forever in a place called hell. It's what we are owed. So how can we possibly know God? Because God makes himself known. The Bible teaches that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that God makes us alive. Jesus put on flesh and he dwelled among us. He lived sinlessly and laid his own life down as an innocent sacrifice to make payment full and finally for sin on our behalf. But he didn't just die. He was also raised to life again. And because he lives, he defeated death and the power of sin. And he calls on you in this very moment to know him and be known by him. How do we do that? We respond to what he has done for us in repentance and faith. 
I know those are both pretty churchy words, but they're really not that complicated. Repentance is the Bible's word for confessing and turning from your sin, to turn away from your sin and to turn to Jesus. Uh, faith is just the Bible's word for trust, to believe that Jesus is, is exactly who he says he is and that he has done exactly what he said he would do. That's faith. So you can do that this morning. You can repent and trust Jesus in saving faith. And I'd love to be helpful to you. You don't, you don't need me. I promise you, you don't need me. God wants to give you himself, not me, through some mediator, right? But I'd love to be helpful to you. We can talk. I'd love to walk you through what that response of faith looks like. But what if you're here this morning and you're not already a follower of Jesus? How do we respond? Same way we do every single week. Whenever God's word is declared, we repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think God is showing us that not only is he a God who is knowable, but he is actively making himself known. And he wants to give you more and more and more of himself. And so we press in as deeply as we are able. He's not left you and I to kind of figure this out on our own. This is not some kind of cosmic game of where's Waldo. He says, here I am, know me. Know me better. He has given us the scriptures and he has given us the church body and he has given us prayer and he's given us extra biblical resources. So let's use them. Let's know him deeply. Pursue him. Pursue him and discover that he is a God who is both good and desires to be discovered. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside to flesh out some action to our response, to move it from just a head thing to a, a put some feet to it thing. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by formally joining our church family. Or maybe it's time to say yes, be obedient to Jesus' command on you to be baptized. Or maybe it's time to say yes to making disciples in some place that has a bunch of different nations than this one. I don't know. But whoever you are, however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you get to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for... Thank you for being a God who is knowable. Not, not because you're easy to understand or because we deserve anything from you or we're on the same level from you. Because you are God who says, here I am, know me. Thank you for making yourself known and for all the tools that you have given us to pursue you well. And God, we, we pray that we never settle for, for veneers. whether they are filled with impressive religious actions or not. May we never settle for things that aren't actually you. Help us be a better church at this. Help us be better leaders at equipping other people for this. Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you call people into your kingdom? by your glory and by your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.